wow. I've had a, f- a number of flashbacks this morning in this room. The first one was as I walked in here at 6.30 this morning and nobody was in here. And I was remembering four months of being in this room with Caleb and a handful of others, Chloe, um, to an empty room, uh, us leading singing and preaching to a, a camera or three cameras. And, uh, and the, my, my particular flashback was the first morning, a couple of months into all that, where we decided, as strange as it may seem, as unnatural, we are going to lead you all in taking the Lord's Supper, even though you're all at home and not with us. And I was so mixed that morning, driving over here before the sun came up, thinking of how strange it would be to gather and break bread and not see any of your faces. And Sarah Kelly and maybe a couple of friends um, knew that and blessed me. Over the weekend, she came into this room and had printed out color pictures of so many of you from our member directory and taped them on all these chairs. And I walked in, I got choked up seeing all these faces that for two months I hadn't seen. And, and it was nowhere near ideal, but it was this reminder of, of what we were supposed to be doing, gathering face to face. And I just want to say this morning, this is way better. <laughs> I remember I came in and I realized that Walton Sherry's picture was taped over there and I had to move it over to these chairs over here because that's just where they sit. But anyway, wow. So here we are. Um, I want to take a moment to that song that we just sang, which is an older hymn text, but Walt sent to music years ago and, and we recorded on one of our Songs of Grace albums. The, long, the older I get and the longer I've been here at Grace and we sing that song, the more powerful it grows to me and more sobering of a reminder it is to me because the longer we sing that song, the more people we know who have taken that last breath and broken through the veil of pain and by death have defeated death. The glorious band that we were singing about this morning that are the saints right now gathered around God's throne in the presence of Jesus that Jesus said is paradise right now who are waiting for the day that Jesus returns and speaks that resurrection word and the dead in Christ are raised to life and those who are alive put on the imperishable and we are forever with the Lord We're one day closer to that today. One of my favorite pastors to follow on Twitter is Isaac Adams, and every day for the last couple of years, he tweets, Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. I never get tired of reading it. It's a great reminder of what we say we believe in our head, but practically speaking, in our day-to-day life can often be in the back of our mind, if at all. I would add to that, we're one day closer to the glorious day that Jesus returns and sets everything right. Today, we have one less day of groaning with all creation, and we're one day closer to glory forever. And until then, grace, I want to begin by this, with this thought. For the Christian, every day is Advent. Every day, not just December, but every day until Jesus returns is Advent. Maybe for some of you last Sunday as we sat, stood in the parking lot on the pavement in 75-degree weather and we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it just seemed dissonant to you. It wasn't to Jackson. Jackson made a point of, he, he could sing Christmas carols every Sunday. He just loves Christmas. But it might have felt weird to you to be singing sort of Advent songs in the month of May. 
But I want to remind you of what Advent is for. We celebrate Advent for a season every year leading up to Christmas to remind us that for centuries, for generations before Jesus arrived, for the faithful in Israel, every day was Advent. For the faithful, every day was a day of waiting and longing and waking up and saying, is today the day that God sends the one? And as we as God's church remember how they waited for the Messiah, it's supposed to be instructive for us and it's supposed to remind us that every day is Advent, not just December, because we've been waiting far longer for the promised return of Jesus. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, Jackson a few weeks back did a great job of helping us get some perspective that in Luke chapter 1, when these, the, the news about Jesus' birth begins to, to start rumbling, it's been 400 years, which is sort of like b- b- the difference between us and the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock. That's a long time. But for us, it's been over 2,000 years since Jesus told his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come back. 2 Peter 3, Peter knew that scoffers would come along, even in his day, how much more our day, and say, where's the promise of his coming? And their argument will be this, he says, every day looks just like the day before. Nothing changes. Every day is the same. Why do you Christians insist on this belief that one day Jesus is going to return and everything's going to change? And we're going to see in this passage in the same way that this morning that Anna and Simeon woke up and realized today is the day, we're going to have a day like that. It's going to be much more public than the day that Simeon and Anna had. But it's coming. We, 2 Peter 3.13 says, are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Today's Advent. Another pastor on Twitter. By the way, Twitter can be a horrible place, as many of you know. Unless you pick your, the people you follow right, and then it can be a wonderfully edifying place. So one other pastor named Garrett Kell I follow on Twitter this week as I'm thinking about Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. We're waiting in new heavens and new earth. Tweeted this just two days ago. In glory there will be no more cancer, corruption, bills, boredom, taxes, no more abortions, rape, Racism, kidnapping, orphans, no more opioids, suicide, adultery, bitterness, no more betrayal, slander, stillborns, fake news, doubts, wars, sin, temptation, suffering, death, mourning, Come soon, Lord Jesus. I want us to be honest with ourselves this morning. How much is this day ahead of us that we're waiting for the most compelling, the greatest thing that we're waiting for among all the other smaller things that you might be waiting for in your life right now? Is this the most compelling? I'll be the first to confess, I'm ashamed to say how much more preoccupied I can be by an Amazon gift that's supposed to arrive, right, than I am that Jesus is coming. 
I mean, I could be on my phone multiple times a day. It's eight stops away from your house. Yes! Can you imagine if we had an app on our phone to track the day that Jesus is coming? It's 35 more days. I don't know that. (laughs) But what if? Or 100 days or whatever it was, there would be this compelling sense of, it's coming. Our passage this morning introduces us to two, Eric called them years ago preaching this passage, one-hit wonders in the Bible. Simeon and Anna, they get just a few verses, we get introduced to them, and then they're gone, and that's all we know about them in the Bible. But this brief little scene that we get with them, they're this beautiful example of saints, faithful saints, who had their eyes on the horizon and were waiting for God to fulfill all that he'd promised. And I want them to encourage us this morning and confront us with the question, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? What are our lives waiting for? So this is my outline. It's very simple. I want to ask two questions. One of them is just about our our passage. The other one is at, at the end of this, in light of this passage for us. So the questions are, who are Simeon and Anna? And then in light of their example here, who are we? Who are we called to be, church? And you might think, well, shouldn't one of those questions be about Jesus? I mean, this is, you know, supposed to be a gospel sermon. Those are both about Jesus. As you're going to see, you can't answer the question, who are Simeon and Anna, without your eyes being on Jesus. And the same should be true when we ask the question, who are we? Both these questions direct our attention to Jesus. So turn to chapter 2 of Luke. Verse 22. By the way, this morning, I love hearing pages turn on the Bible, and in your Bibles, and I know some of you are scrolling and getting there, but I love the sound of the pages flipping. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have plenty of them on your way out this morning. Ask one of our ushers in the lobby, and, and uh, no shame, just say, I would love a Bible, and we'll give you one, and you can keep that and bring it back with you. Luke Chapter 2, verse 22. I want to just read the first three verses. That sets the the stage. Here's the context, the the setting in which we are introduced to Simeon and Anna, and they're introduced to the child Jesus. I've got to wear these these days when I'm reading. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him, the child Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So just stop right there. We learn two things here about Mary and Joseph, which we already have known these because we've seen glimpses of them already in the way that Mary received this angelic announcement. But again, we're reminded um, Mary and Joseph are among the faithful ones. They're devout. You know, Paul at one point makes the point, listen, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Meaning, there are, there are many who are born in the line of Abraham, but who don't share the faith of Abraham. And in that sense, they're not truly Israel. Well, Mary and Joseph are Israel. They are faithful ones. They're devout. Three times in those three verses, it underscores that they're here because they want to live in accordance with God's laws, the laws of Moses. They fear the Lord. They walk in in obedience because of their faith. And so they're here at the temple to fulfill two covenant requirements. 
Verse 22, to present Jesus to the Lord as their firstborn. And second, to offer a sacrifice for purification according to the law. Forty days after Mary had given birth, there was this, this requirement to, to, to offer this sacrifice, um, making her clean again. But we're told that presenting Jesus to the Lord was to fulfill what God had commanded Israel a long time ago through Moses in Exodus chapter 13. See that little parenthetical comment in your text. It says, in presenting Jesus to the Lord, this is what they were doing. They were fulfilling what was written in the law of the Lord, that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What's that all about? Well, if you don't remember maybe Sunday school stories of the Exodus for hundreds of years, Israel had grown into a nation and they were down in Egypt and they'd been enslaved for centuries and God had promised to one day lead them out. And he finally broke them free from their bondage under the Pharaoh through a series of plagues. And the final plague was that God killed the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, human and animal, But he'd made gracious provision for his people. He had said, I want each household to sacrifice a spotless lamb and take the blood and paint it over the doorposts of your home. And that night, my wrath will pass over your house and will only fall on the Egyptians. And so consecrating the firstborn son was something that God told Israel to do to never forget that. And in doing so, they were remembering how God had passed over them in their sin under the blood of this spotless lamb and redeemed them from slavery. This is one of the earliest shadows, I think, of the cross in Luke's gospel hanging over the baby Jesus. Because as we're going to come to see as we study the gospel of Luke, Jesus would be the only firstborn son ever who would not need to be under the blood of another for God's wrath to, pa- wrath to pass over him. He was sinless. He was spotless. And because of this, this child that Mary is bringing and Joseph are bringing to the temple and dedicating as the firstborn to the Lord will actually be able to offer up his own blood and be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and bear the wrath that we deserve. Little did Mary and Joseph know how their son was going to become the horn of God's salvation. So they were devout, and they were poor. We see this here. In his mercy, God had made provision in the sacrificial system so that even the poorest in Israel would not be hindered from coming in faith and offering sacrifice. And so the provision for the poor was that if you didn't have a lamb, you could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons which is what Mary and Joseph were obviously bringing. Which again is just amazing when you think, here's Mary, she's the one who bore in her womb the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. She can't even uh, afford a lamb to offer for her own sacrifice and she comes with the poorest offering. It's another one of those foreshadowings that we're seeing about Jesus, our Messiah, that he's coming as a humble king condescending, stooping low to save us. So that's the context. That's why Mary and Joseph are here at the temple with the baby Jesus to do these things according to the law. So let's read the rest of the story, verses 25 and continuing. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, 
waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. I think implying that one morning the Spirit prompted him, hey, Simeon, come to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What a story. So who were Simeon and Anna? And I don't, I don't want to first just jump to their character because Luke tells us something about their character and about what their daily life was like. What sort of people Simeon and Anna were? First, though, I want to answer that question. um, Who does Luke present Simeon and Anna to us as? What, What sort of role do they play here as Luke is beginning to tell his account, his eyewitness account of the Messiah that that God has sent? Why are their stories important here as Jesus enters the scene, even though they come and go in just a few verses never to be mentioned again? Well, I think that Luke presents them to us as watchmen and as witnesses. Watchmen and witnesses. Here's what I mean. Watchmen, I'm getting from the the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet, on a number of occasions, mentioned these watchmen that God would set in Israel over the years. A watchman, we're supposed to picture someone stationed high up on the wall of a city looking out at the horizon, watching for a sign of sometimes an enemy um, appearing on the horizon or the king returning from battle. For some reason, I was picturing, can you put that picture up, Philip? If you've ever gone to Hume Lake and hiked up to Buck Rock Fire Tower, it's an amazing spot. You've got to drive way out on these fire roads, and then it's quite a long hike, and then there's this super long, you know, steep stairway, and you get to this little, like, ranger tent perched on this outcropping of rock, and you can see in 360 degree, degrees hundreds of miles, and, and a ranger will live up there, and night and day will keep their eyes scanning the horizon for any sign of smoke or fire so that they can immediately alert 
um, to put that out. Let me take that down. But, but that's kind of the image here is, is watchmen that, it, that, that God was going to set in Israel who would be lookouts. And I want to read two of these passages. And as I read them, having just heard this scene with Simeon and Anna, I want to ask you, um, does this sound familiar? Listen to this from Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, who don't forget the promises that God has made, take no rest, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in all the earth. Doesn't that sound like Anna? Here's this woman for decades as a widow, giving God no rest at the temple, day and night, fasting and praying. God, bring your glory back to your people, Israel. God, make your name praised in all the earth. She's a watchman. Listen to this from Isaiah 52, 8 through 10. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Why? For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. The Lord has flexed before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Does that sound familiar? So many details from those verses show up suddenly in this scene with Simeon and Anna, don't they? Simeon's joyful praise as he comes face to face, eye to eye with this baby, he realizes the Lord is returning to his temple in in, in Zion. God's salvation is finally being seen by all the peoples. The Lord is about to flex his arm and comfort and his people and redeem Jerusalem. These watchmen in Israel were to be a reminder that God will not forsake his people and won't forsake his promises. Even through 400 years of prophetic silence, God had never failed to keep a faithful remnant of people like Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph and others as we see at the end of this passage as Anna goes running around to all the others who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And they were to remain among God's people to do their best to help God's people keep their eyes on the horizon and not give up faith that God will uh, fail to fulfill his covenant promises. So I think Anna and Simeon here are put forward as examples of watchmen for us because they're both described as waiting. Look at verse 25 and verse 39. Waiting describes their lives. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This word waiting is not just a passive or neutral sort of waiting. It's not just waiting around. It's an active eager, leaning forward kind of waiting. It's a, it's a readiness to receive and welcome the moment they see his arrival. It's the same word Jesus uses in some of his parables when he describes servants whose master goes away for a time but promises to return. The sort of waiting the servants do where their eyes are on the door and the house is ready 
at any moment to receive him back. That's the sort of waiting Simeon Anna lived by. What are they on the lookout for? Well, it says in verse 25, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And in verse uh, 39, that Anna was among those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Those aren't two separate things. In fact, they're both the same thing. I think that they're the same thing that uh, Simeon declares in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. Consolation and redemption are just two aspects of the salvation that Jesus would bring. This was helpful. One pastor I read this last week uh, distinguished these two aspects of God's salvation like this. Consolation, he said, is God bringing comfort by healing and restoring what had been thrown away or lost. Redemption is his work of power. It's his bearing his arm to rescue his people from their enemies. So we should ask, okay, so why did Israel need consolation? Well, if you don't know their history, their history was one of utter failure with a few brief, bright exceptions. But they were, they were chronic in their idolatry. The Lord their God would provide for them and protect them and establish them and exalt them. And within a generation, they would all turn away and they'd run after the idols of all the other peoples around them. And because they were in this covenant relationship with God that had both promises, blessings, and curses, whenever they wandered and went astray, those consequences fell on Israel and he would deliver them into the hands of their enemies for a time until they came to their senses and they turned back to him and repented and he would deliver them and rescue and redeem them again only for them again to fail utterly. Theirs was a history of chronic mutiny against their God. And for 400 years now at this point, after God had spoken through the last of their prophets, Israel in Simeon's day were still feeling the consequences of their, their having broken covenant with their God. They were back in the land. They had been allowed to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, but the land wasn't theirs. They just lived in it. They were under occupation. That's why they needed consolation. But here's the thing. How would this consolation come? How would lasting consolation for Israel come? Because their history had already proven that God just coming in and liberating them from whatever um, oppressing uh, nation was over them in that day didn't do it, right? Deliver the, delivers them from the Philistines. Generation later, they're back at it. Delivers them from Assyria. Delivers them from Babylon. Delivers them, delivers them, and they just keep going back. If there's going to be lasting consolation in Israel, they need to be redeemed from something bigger than the latest nation to take them over. They need to be redeemed from sin. They need to be redeemed from the thing that has kept them in their perpetual cycle of unfaithfulness. Remember two weeks ago, Junior preached on Zechariah's song and he pointed out that Zechariah's praise was structured in a way that all of the lines in the first half of the song had a corresponding line in the second half of the song, sort of in, in, in a shape like this. And the lines in the first half correspond here and, and to, taken together give a fuller picture. And one of those that struck me was this. In verse 69, in the opening of his song, he says that the, God was, was raising up a horn of salvation like an ox horns to come and gore the enemy, right? 
But if you notice the corresponding phrase at the end of his song, when he speaks of salvation again, that John the Baptist was going to make known to all the people, what was this horn of salvation? Verse 77, it's going to be the forgiveness of sin. How is God going to bear his holy arm and save his people through the forgiveness, the permanent forgiveness of their sin? Well, Jesus, in seeming weakness, was going to offer himself up to be gored on the cross and spill his blood at the hands of wicked men. But in doing so, we're already being told that's the horn of God's salvation. That's the way in which God is going to flex his arm and and redeem us from our greatest enemy, sin. And because of that, then, bring comfort and consolation and restore what we'd all forfeited and thrown away in our sin. That's the gospel. This is what Simeon and Anna were waiting for. God's salvation, his redemption, his consolation. And notice then, I want to come to their character. Their lives, I believe, were shaped by what they were waiting for. God, whose word they trusted, and the one he promised would come to be their consolation and be their redemption, shaped who they were. Notice what it says about Simeon. Very simple and straightforward. It says this man was righteous and devout. doesn't mean he was without sin. Nobody's without sin. It means that he lived a life of obedience that comes from faith, just like we're called to do. It's sort of the Old Testament sense of, I think, in the New Testament phrase, walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Or in the language of the Proverbs, walking in the fear of the Lord. Simeon walked in the fear of the Lord. And he did so devoutly. He was devoted to his relationship with the Lord, which implies some very simple and and non-mysterious things like being a man of God's word, being a man of prayer, being committed to those simple, regular, daily, religious activities through which we cultivate a real, vibrant relationship with God. Simeon was righteous and devout. And he was patient and he walked by faith. Look at it, it says, not only did Simeon know all these promises God had made in the scriptures that one day Messiah would come, but specifically God had given him a personal word of assurance that he wouldn't die until he had set eyes on the one. What a kind, special gift that God gave this man Simeon. And he lived in the daily confidence that God was going to keep that word. The Spirit was upon him, it says, such that the morning that the Spirit prompted him in whatever way that happened, hey, today's the day. He got up and he went to the temple. And look at Anna. It doesn't list all the same things. It doesn't say she was righteous and devout and patient and walking by faith, but it's clear that she was all these things too, wasn't she? Her constant presence at the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, I mean, picture this, as a young woman, just after seven years of being married, she's a widow, and she remained that way until she was 84, or maybe some translations translate it for 84 more years, which would have meant she was over 100. But either way, for decades, 
we see the focus of her devotion through all those years without a husband was the Lord and this Redeemer that he'd promised. She was always found at the temple waiting. She would have had some understandable reasons to maybe lose faith in God, you think? I mean, from what we understand, a widow in her day was a difficult life, often a poor life, a struggling life. But we get no hint of bitterness here about Anna, only joy and expectation. Undivided heart of faith toward God. And I don't think those things were accident. They were shaped by the God who had made these promises and their confidence that he would bring these about one day and their longing to live for that day. So Anne and Simeon are watchmen here in this passage who become two of the first witnesses. Remember this gospel, Luke said, is his attempt for Theophilus to do his best work in in getting all of this eyewitness, firsthand um, testimony, all those who had seen Jesus with their eyes, and they become two of the first with the shepherds, witnesses. So Simeon is the first to encounter him. Look here in uh, verse 27. Prompted by the Spirit, one day he realizes today's the day. So he heads to the temple and he walks in. And Okay, I want to point out here something. It never says anything here about Simeon having any sort of official priestly role or religious leader role. I think he was just a man. We might assume that he was a priest and they came in to make these offerings and present, present him and he was the one that they presented, but it doesn't say that. It just says that He comes into the temple on the day the Spirit prompts as Mary and Joseph are coming in with the baby. And likely this is out in the courtyard. This is where all the people, men and women are gathered and Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. This was in a public place. And, and, And God says, that's the one. And he walks up to this couple. I hope he asked first. He said, he takes their baby up in his arms. And he says, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Whether he means I can die happy now Or, if he understood himself like a watchman, is just saying, mission accomplished. This is what I've been watching for. I've seen all I need to see in this baby. He says, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Just let this sink in. He's looking at a baby with poor parents. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Think of all that Simeon had not yet and probably wouldn't live to see. We have no indication that he saw Jesus grow up, become a man, hear Jesus teach, see any of his miracles, witness his suffering, his crucifixion, his burial. He probably didn't see the risen Jesus. He probably didn't live long enough to see him ascend into heaven and pour his spirit out and clothe his church in power. He saw none of those things. He saw a baby in the arms of a poor couple. I think he understood that the consolation of Israel was a person and not just a state of peace and relief and comfort. He wasn't just waiting for comfort. He was waiting for the comforter. And he sees this baby, and the Spirit made it clear, this is the one, and that's all he needed to see. 
He didn't need to see the rest to trust that God would bring all that about in his timing, and he bursts out in praise. And then he turns to Mary with a word of prophecy. And so between his praise and the prophecy, we get these, these sort of good news and hard news about Jesus in three images. Here they are. In his praise, we get good news about Jesus, that Jesus is God's beacon of salvation. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. God's salvation has now been prepared in the presence of all peoples, and he's a light. A beacon is a light that's put up in a high place that can be seen by everyone as far as the eye can see that draws people's attention to that point of light and illuminates. And Jesus is a light of, of revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon, I think being a man of God's word, sees in this baby that God is bringing fulfillment of promises like this in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. There's the glory for his people Israel. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. There's the revelation to the Gentiles. So Jesus is a beacon that's going to draw people from every tongue and tribe and nation to himself and to his Father and it will illuminate the way of life, the pathway of life. Jesus comes saying, I'm the way and the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's a line in, in, we sang last Sunday as we left our last outdoor service, all glory be to Christ, that's about this exact thing. The beam that shines from Zion's hill will lighten every land. The suffering servant of our God will all the world command. Jesus is a light of revelation to the world. And as we're going to work our way through the gospel of Luke, we are going to see Jesus again and again like a beacon of light, drawing Gentiles, drawing outsiders, often right next to one of God's people who should have recognized, who miss it. We're going to again and again see the beacon of Jesus like moths to a flame, drawing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to his light. And as you go on into the book of Acts, he sends us as the church out to take that light into all the world. But he also says that Jesus is a light that's going to bring glory for God's people, Israel. And I, This is a, a sweet little detail in here and a reminder of God's incredible patience and his compassion and mercy and grace. Because Israel by this point didn't deserve the glory of being God's people, did they? Israel had disgraced herself for generations, had brought shame on the name of the Lord in the sight of the nations. One of the most common metaphors for Israel through the prophets is a prostitute and an adulterer running from her betrothed again and again, following her lusts. And yet Jesus is coming as a light to bring glory to God's people. Despite her unfaithfulness, God is still going to be faithful to that promise to Abraham that through you all the nations are going to be blessed. And they're still going to have the unique 
glory of being the people from which God sends his Savior. Covering their shame. What an amazingly gracious God. But along with the good news, there comes some hard news. Look at his prophecy here to Mary. He turns as the parents are marveling about what is being said to him and and he says, well, not so fast. He doesn't say that, but he says two hard things to Mary. He says, first, this child will bring great division in Israel. Everyone in Israel is not suddenly going to flock to the light. In fact, for many... They're going to recognize quickly that this light is revealing darkness that they don't want revealed, and they're going to reject him. And in fact, they're going to oppose him and mount um, a resistance against him and ultimately put him on the cross. Later in 1 Corinthians that we studied just a year ago at Grace, Paul will call Christ crucified a stumbling block or a stumbling stone to the Jews. Many of his own people will reject him as we'll see in Luke's gospel. And as a result, the second point of bad news, Jesus is going to bring great pain upon Mary, he says. He says a sword will pierce your own soul also. And he doesn't give details, but as we can imagine, as Mary watches the path that her son will walk in order to be the horn of God's salvation, it's going to grieve her. At times, she's going to think her son's lost his mind and he's wearing himself out. She's going to stand by the cross and watch as Jesus is crucified as he, with some of his last words, says to John, his disciple, behold your son. And he passes the mantle of responsibility for his widowed mom onto his beloved disciple. This is going to cost Jesus greatly, and by extension, it's going to cost Mary and all of us who unite ourselves to Jesus greatly. I don't want to leave Anna out here. We get Anna's encounter next, and it's very brief. It's only one verse, verse 28. It says, coming up at that very hour, she crashes the party. She begins to give thanks to God. It doesn't even say, but she comes up and obviously sees what's going on and recognizes this is the one. Maybe she overhears Simeon blessing God and speaking these words to Mary and she goes, that's what I've been waiting for. But it says at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and what does she immediately do? She begins to speak to him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's a hopeful picture. These aren't the only two people gathered at the temple that day who are waiting. She runs around to the others that she knew were also waiting and said, come here, come here, come here. This is our salvation. And while Simeon gives thanks to God and then speaks to Mary, she runs around and begins to spread the news. She begins to be the first evangelist in the Gospel of Luke. Okay. So I said at the outset that that I think Simeon and Anna are examples for us here. They've been recorded here to remind us who Jesus is and to encourage us as an example of how to live in light of our waiting. So who are we? I think we're also called as God's church to be watchmen and witnesses. We're still called to, to, to fulfill these roles. Turn over to Titus chapter two as we finish. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul, hey, just give us a few verses, Paul, on 
how to imitate the faith of Simeon and Anna. I think he'd say, I gave it to you. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Let me read it and see if you see what I mean here. He reminds Titus and the church that he's pastoring. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's all in there. Look at verse 11. That's what Simeon and Anna had seen in its seed form, the grace of God appearing and God's salvation being uh, appearing for the first time before all people. They saw it in the face of this baby. But grace, we've seen it in its full form, not just in the infant, in the manger, but the man, Jesus, who taught like no one else and who did works that confounded the crowds that only God could do, who died on the cross and was buried and was raised. We've seen all of that. But we've seen more. We've seen that he ascended to the Father and sat down at his right hand. We've seen him pour out his spirit on the church, clothing his church in power. And we've seen 2,000 years of evidence of him clothing his church in power and scattering it to the farthest places in the world. We even have the privilege right now, Grace, that we hold the rope with some of our Grace partners who are taking the, the light of the revelation of Jesus in places where his name's never been named today. We've seen all of this. And we're told, like 2 Peter 3, that his delaying his return is because he wishes none to perish but all to reach repentance. And so like Simeon and Anna, we're called to be watchmen. Verse 13, we're to live waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And we're to be witnesses. We're not eyewitnesses. We're dependent upon them. But nevertheless, we have their testimony and we've been handed it like a baton to bring light to the world. We're a people for God's possession, he says. And 1 Peter 2 tells us that part of the job description of people for God's possession is that we proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his light until the day he returns. Now, Simeon's word should sober us in that calling. We've been told that not everyone is going to receive that as good news, that many will fall, many will stumble. Jesus will reveal the hardened hearts of many who will reject him. And we've been told by his warning to Mary that those who are united with him, who follow him, might share his name and proclaim him and represent him in this world at great cost. But nevertheless, are our lives going to be shaped by what we're waiting for? I want to finish with this. Philip, if you could put this up. I love our statement of faith. 
Our statement of faith has 10 statements of these things that we believe are, are central truths and, and what we believe make up the gospel. And number nine of those 10 statements is what we believe about the return of Jesus. And I love this because it doesn't just say what we believe, but it gives the implications of what we believe and says in light of what we believe, how then should we live? And I want to read this and I want to take a moment here together to pray that the Lord would, would make this Make, make us like this. So here's the statement. We believe in the personal, bodily, that means not um, figurative, literal. Jesus in the flesh will return just as he ascended. Personal body and glorious. That means, in, in part, it's not going to be in one little corner like Simeon and Anna. It's going to be global. The return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next statement. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. That's it. If I had two words for Anna and Simeon and their example, constant expectancy. Next slide. As our blessed hope then, this should motivate the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. 